we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Okay, this is Kean, and you're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird Plus. And what that means is all things going well. If you're listening to this, it should be Halloween. On Halloween, a bunch of episodes are dropping at the same time. We have our main episode for the week, which is our very on-brand one, and that is going to be about Borley Rectory. And we're also having this episode, which is the first of the sort of bonus episodes that going forward will be available to people who sign up to us on Patreon. So again, all things going well, we should be dropping the Patreon whole situation today or at least this weekend. And what that means is you can go and take a look at the different categories. And for some of them, you'll get bonus episodes, which we'll be calling Wide Atlantic Weird Plus. And what that means is... They'll be a little bit more fun, a little bit more free and easy. We'll be covering a much wider variety of topics. I I don't feel like I need to stick to things that are so um, on on the level as I usually do. So what that means in practice is we'll be talking about all sorts of silly, fun, more relaxed things. Maybe music, maybe movies, maybe stuff from history, maybe books I've read. Uh, Anything that myself and my friends and my contributors feel we love talking about or maybe know a lot about. So with all of that said, oh, and by the way, this one is available to everybody. Just as an example, make you think about whether you'd like to go and sign up. And the link to that, of course, will be in the show notes and in the bios on our socials, which as always are at Strange Ireland over on um, uh, Twitter and on Instagram. We are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So with all of that out of the way with me to talk about 80s Kiss is Dr. Donald Gill. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me to discuss one of my uh, non-scholarly but truly devotional uh, favorite topics. <laughs> Is are, are you the most qualified person ever to have spoken about this subject? That's a really good question. Um, you know, as a lifelong pro wrestling fan and obviously a longtime Kiss devotee, um, I, I don't want to take too many pot shots at the fan bases of, of, of both uh, kind of cults, but... Uh, I think there's a good chance that I'm I'm more qualified than many. <laughs> I'd say you're more qualified than Chris Jericho, who also <laughs> did an episode about 80s Kiss last year, didn't he? Well, look, I have a very <laughs> mixed relationship <laughs> with Jericho. There's so many things that he does that I that I love, and his he has a religious devotion to 80s Kiss that I truly, truly appreciate at the you know in the really, really um, depths of my soul. But. Uh, He's he's up to his old crimes again recently with more conspiracy we, nuts. We, we on. gave him a little bit of yeah, we gave him a little bit of stick already this year. Uh, but you, you once said a very a very interesting thing, which is your relationship with him is like an abusive relationship in which he'll he'll make you really really angry and think that what he does is irresponsible, and then he'll he'll sucker you back in with a nice episode about eighties kiss by hitting you exactly where he knows you're going to feel it. Well, like like a true kind of. Um you know uh psychological villain he knows exactly where my weak spots are so that no matter what (laughs) crimes have been committed beforehand i'll always come back and i won't just come back i'll come back on bended knee begging for more because he knows exactly what i need and that i'm powerless to resist so when he brings brings on you know people to talk 80s kiss or other kind of uh, he's he does a lot of canadian oddities as well uh that again I'm, i'm prone to um haven't lived here now for 10 years uh 
but at the same time, his crimes are numerous and voluminous, but nonetheless. <laughs> well, we, we enjoy talking about KISS. We're going to presume that people roughly know who KISS are. We're not going to give too much of a general background to them. If you want that, we did. I did put up an old episode earlier this year with uh, the two of us talking about KISS in general. And honestly, it's one of the funniest things I think we've ever recorded. And it's it's mostly about the four guys and their crazy personalities and how they're all assholes. In, in slightly different ways, but we're going we're gonna to focus on the 80s KISS, the unmasked years, the, the no-makeup years. So, obviously, KISS mostly well-known for their sort of cartoonish superhero over-the-top visuals and persona, but they went through a period when that was not the case, and for me, as a, as a more of an outsider, I'm not as... as hooked into the world of Kiss as you. And for me, the stereotype was always that this was a period when they kind of lost their way, they lost their footing, they were unsure of, of themselves, they, their gigantic success in the 70s was behind them, and they were, unsure, you know, kind of scrambling around to find out what their relevance was, and unfortunately took the makeup off and decided to make sort of cheesy, middle-of-the-road 80s cock rock, which was quite similar to all the other cheesy 80s cock rock that was going on and uh, for a long time this period was maligned by fans that's my impression but maybe is getting a bit of a having a bit of a comeback now is that a fair overview generally speaking yeah so we're we're, we're going to talk today about the the non-makeup years which go but from 1983 to 1996 ish thereabouts um and you could kind of there's essentially kind of four main time periods in history and I mean, you could break it down, obviously, into to, you know microcosms and whatnot. But generally, we have the kind of the the Halcyon original lineup years of uh, seventy four to seventy nine, um, and then there's like a little break or a couple of years where they're not quite at their their great level, but they're still rocking the makeup. We have the first kind of uh, lineup instability. Peter leaves. Eric Carr replaces him. A starts to still be featured on album covers while not playing whatever then we get the non-makeup years from 83 to 96 (laughs) those are initially intensely unstable especially regards to the the lead guitar spot um and then 96 to 2000 we get the the reunion where we have the four original members back in makeup massive success uh (laughs) including an album called psycho circus that peter and ace got paid 40 grand not to play on And then Peter and Ace are kicked out again, and we get uh, Eric Singer and Tommy Thayer in, but this time in the makeup, and kind of from about 2003 to the present day, the Kiss are essentially on autopilot doing the kind of um, greatest... Are they still calling it the Farewell Tour? Because that that went on for decades, didn't it? Well, the original Farewell Tour was in 2000, and that was supposed to be the we're never going to play again. But then once they decided that they wanted to keep playing, it was the we're never going to play with... Um, ace and peter again and so what they did then more recently um in 2018 2019 it was supposed to continue in 2020 but it's on hold until next year was what was called the end of the road tour um (laughs) and what was really funny is like this was a we really mean it this time tour (laughs) yeah well this was booked as a two-year long tour and there was a lot of press uh asking gene and paul you know like is it really realistic to say that a two-year-long tour it could be ever described as the end of the road and uh paul and gene said well you can be sure that when we come to your town that's the last time we'll ever be in your town and uh, which, is, which is a good thing to say if you're trying to encourage people to come along 
and you're thinking about the money. Well, I w- as I'm sure they were. Oh, well, of course. That's that's the that's the bottom line always and forever. But I went to see them in Montreal in March, and this was in 2019, and they came back in August, and <laughs> I went again. <laughs> The second time, you know, at least I, I I uttered a few performative grumbles that I had been conned and hoodwinked yet again. Uh, and I saw the exact same set that I have seen every time I've seen them. But because uh, they're, they're not interested in playing any of the deep cuts for the real fans. But it is what it is. We go through the motions. So those are the kind of the, the general big macroscopic four eras. Um, and we're going to kind of maybe break down the, the non-makeup 83 to 96 period in a small bit more detail. Go through the, uh, I suppose, the, the controversial highs, you know, like as in you ha- you there's, there's an asterisk or, or qualifications or, or around the highs because, like you said, they, they're all within the context of the, the general heavy metal hard rock scene of the time, which is, you know, I suppose distasteful to many. The hair metal. I also think period. this. We're we're obviously going to talk about what what you do enjoy about that stuff, but you know, at first, like it, it struck me for years as just being very generic, and you know whatever else you can say about Kiss, they were they they stood out in certain ways, and you know in the seventies when they were extremely big at first, and you wouldn't mistake them for anybody else, and you know it's it's hard to avoid the criticism that they lost their identity they lost who they were supposed to be when they were looking and sounding really similar to a lot of other stuff that was going on yeah i think let's i i think they were in survival mode at at various key points during this period and they they towed a safe line in order to secure their their economic uh continuation over over anything else um, well, let's talk about the personnel lineup at the, at this kind of juncture. So, in in all of the literature since and all the interviews, Paul Stanley has always crafted the narrative that he was the one keeping the ship afloat. Everybody else had either sort of lost interest or was just not being reliable enough. And he always maintained, yeah, maybe we weren't, you know, functioning on top form, but that's because I was the only one giving shit and writing songs and kind of creating some kind of direction for them. And, and therefore, he kind of becomes the focus during this period and you can really see in the music videos he kind of does come into his own doesn't he where he, he's enjoying the sort of androgynous pomp uh, of 80s cock rock whereas gene simmons kind of looks like he's uncertain how to present himself he doesn't look as comfortable um in, the, in that kind of get up and without the makeup and, and what, what's your take on the the personalities that happened during this change and how, how was that important yeah so you're, you're raising a couple of points there that i think are you know definitive in in kind of understanding what happens to kiss at this time period so the big one is that they go through a couple of years where they alienate their core fan base with you know just prior to this period with the kind of the disco and pop flirtations of the dynasty album in 1979 and the unmasked album was, in 1980 so was that was that paul stanley's doing I, th- or, or, I think was it was primarily his doing. I think it was the two of them, really. Gene and Paul were pretty interested in taking Kiss to the next level. Think they thought that they could expand out of the kind of the realm of the hard rockers and didn't want to be just a, a teenage band. They started to really appeal to kids more, and they wanted it to be a little bit more family friendly and stuff like that. And they they put a very pop sheen on their on their sound, so like. I'd say Un- Unmasked, it, it, Night from 1980, is a, a pretty, 
it's it's a directionless bland album with nothing really to speak for the songs that almost sound like the police on there it's just totally they've lost their wow. way entirely dynasty is a good album actually that's where i was made for loving you comes from um <laughs> it's a good album but it's got kind of a bit of a, a again a kind of a, a shimmery disco style production but like ace is on top form on that he sings four songs on it he's got lots of really good solos peter doesn't play at all this is where peter's in his uh coked out pretending to learn jazz phase <laughs> um is and is ace checked is this because i mean isn't it true that they like for decades they were telling ace that you know he's he never recorded solos for albums because he was famously unreliable and he was drinking too much and and then decades later it was discovered that actually he had recorded some of these solos and the lads just took them off the albums and told him and lied to him that he wasn't there and he but he'd believed them for years because he couldn't remember himself he was what happened because he that was even prior to this like that was at their absolute heyday like the most the most Jeez. famous example of that was on destroyer so that was uh, 1976 when they were recording that album and that was after their first live album alive had become a huge smash and they were kind of they were very like copacetic with the the cultural zeitgeist and they were kind of riding the quest crest of a wave where kind of kiss and the the sense of 70s americana had somehow kind of seeged in together but by 79 ace was actually quite switched on he'd done his solo album in 78 and the critical consensus was that he had done the best job out of all that and so he was pretty confident and i think more present but the the, those albums alienated their their core fan base then they had the obviously the disastrous experimentation with the elder in 81 (laughs) And then that was such a flop. Nobody wanted a concept. Still my favorite Kiss album. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'll I'll go to bat for it any day. But it wasn't what the fans (laughs) wanted at the time. No. General public just kind of like cocked an eyebrow and and moved on very fast. So the tour for that was canceled. Then in 82, Ace is kind of at this stage at the the zenith of his kind of coked out of it, drunk, driving around in his DeLorean, crashing it madness and so he's no longer involved and they do the creatures of the night album which is like basically a full-on metal album with super heavy drums eric carr is kind of really given a, a spotlight to just thump the shit out of these cavernous stadium filling massive heavy metal drums but the album is kind of just basically ignored because um they uh they, again, their their fans were just like no longer paying attention, and you had kind of like a new wave of metal acts like Judas Priest and Iron I've Maiden. I've got to imagine at that point, if you're a proper metal fan, like you don't care what Kiss are doing, do you? Like exactly. And there's they're kind of they're embarrassing to you. I think something that's that was more prominent then that feels uh, I don't know strangely aloof to us now is that like the transition between decades was more kind of firm or something where once i think there's always a year or two where there's a lag but with you know like in 1980 1981 we're kind of still culturally in the 70s but by 1982 i think we're really into a new epoch whereas today with the internet and the way in which you know everything that's ever happened culturally is on call through a myriad of devices at any time we can kind of you know there isn't this feeling of oh that's old hat we don't do that anymore you know, every retro and nostalgia is kind of permanently in. But I think like Kiss, like I said, had been a, a definitively 70s, not just musical act, but a dis- definitively 70s thing. And so when they're kind of saying, oh, there's a new kind of heavy metal movement coming about, we're going to get on board that train and play that kind of music. Because they ha- And they had a, um, a claim to say like, we were heavy 
back then. You know, like you should. What love... songs are on Creatures of the Night? Uh, that I might know. I mean, I know the song Ooh, Creatures of the Night. What, that's, <laughs> what else is on that's, it? That's a, a version of it for sure. Uh, <laughs> the, I suppose the closest thing to a hit off of it would be I Love It Loud. Oh, yeah. And uh, War, yeah. War Machine is one of Ace the other ones. Or, um, Gene sings that, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if it's too yeah. loud, you're too old. That's it's classic Gene <laughs> stuff. Has a, a fantastic four note guitar solo. Um, and War, War, War Machine is a good one. They they still play that in their sets today. They, honestly, like there's a load of really good songs on Creatures of the Night, but it's they Ace didn't play on it at all. They had a lot of different kind of heads come in and do do lead guitar. They were kind of auditioning people by saying like, here you take the solo in this song. We'll see what we like. And the person who did most of the guitar solos on it turned out to be this this young guy from New York called Vincent Cusano, who would later get the lead guitar spot when they finally kick Ace out, or he leaves, depending on who you believe. And they rename him <laughs> Vinnie Vincent. And so they had a disastrous tour in support of Creatures and Night, and they call it their 10th anniversary tour. And Paul said it was just like a miserable failure to the point where when he would flick his guitar picks into the crowd, he could like clear everybody in the crowd and it would hit the hit the ground behind where people were and they they kind of like kiss have have a, had they always had issues when in the in their moments of of unpopularity when it came to booking tours that they like on a kind of a pompous or machismo kind of style of thinking they refused not to play arenas so they would kind of go to these 10,000 seat arenas with 1,500 people in them instead of going to a club yeah. where they could they, sell well, they, it out. Didn't they? They model themselves on a on a on design that just didn't work under a certain size. They, you know, we are stadium rock. We don't play in clubs. That's it. Doesn't work. There's no space for the fireworks and everything and all the, the, the oomph. Yeah, exactly. And so, and um, it was a kind of a thing where like we're going to spend the money on the fireworks no matter what. You know, the, this <laughs> this thing doesn't scale down. So. That that tour was a miserable failure, except for they played this gigantic festival in Brazil where there's like, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people there. You can see footage of it. It's pretty amazing. Um, but like that contrast between, you know, what that kind of, um, I suppose, that momentary reclamation of what they what they used to be versus the reality of what they were in the States led them to think like we have to do something drastic to change. And that's when they decide, all right, the makeup's going to come off. So um, Paul Stanley always tells the story that at this point Gene is is losing interest and he's making terrible Hollywood movies and hanging out with Hollywood royalty and stuff like that. So what what was he up to at this point? So Gene is uh, in, at the point where the makeup is ready to come off. Gene hasn't kind of he's he's taking acting lessons and he's looking to expand upon his broader celebrity. So he's kind of seen as maybe a figure outside of the band almost, you know, like he's the one that people know. More so than Paul Stanley when they think Kiss. They think the guy with the tongue, Gene Simmons, seems to have his, his name, a bit of name value. Uh, so he's taking acting lessons, but he's still more or less committed to the band. And he gives it his all on the first non-makeup album with Vinnie Vincent on lead guitar. And Vinnie Vincent does a lot of co-writes. He sings a whole bunch of songs. Or sorry, he co-writes Is that a bunch the one that's called Unmasked? No, Unmasked, they still have makeup on. Um, oh, I'm confused now. Yeah, it's... It, what's, th- their, that was, what's the first non-makeup Lick it album? Up. <laughs> they're very tastefully entitled yeah yeah um and you know what like gene very smartly uh this the the album cover is just the four of them standing on front of a white backdrop and gene stuck out his tongue so it 
was apropos for the for the um <laughs> the name of the album, but also uh it made sure that you knew which one he was. Uh which is you know yeah, that's which is yeah. very gene minded, you know, get the branding in. And I think Lick It Up is a is a pretty strong album. It's a very like nineteen eighty three metal album. It kinda sounds a bit like Aussie albums from that time, a bit like Quiet Riot. And it's a you know, they they put in a good shift, I think. Paul wrote some good songs. Lick It Up, the title track, is like a really simplistic uh <laughs> anthem, but it's a good sing along one. They still play it in their set to this day, so it's one of the few kind of like non makeup tracks that, that outlived um that era. Um, and that's Vinnie Vincent co-writing that as well. Uh, this is, did they have any kind of like public event where they came out without the makeup? They did it. That on, sounds like something they would do. Yes, of course. They did it on MTV, <laughs> um, and they did a kind of like a a very nineteen eighty three. Here's us sitting with our makeup on, and then we do like a a, a wipe transition to the faces. Uh, without makeup but like what's really funny is like they're like and now we see gene simmons without his makeup now we see paul stanley with his makeup now we see eric carr without his makeup and uh, you can just imagine people going like oh i don't remember him who and then they do <laughs> vinnie vincent without his makeup and vinnie vincent had only worn makeup for one tour and he wasn't even on the cover of the album that he that he was touring in support of you know and he was the egyptian ank warrior character so he's got that you know that kind yeah, of that that's right. cross with the loop on top that was on his face yeah so this was the period when they like when they got new guys in they actually did try to come up with new characters for them but they junked that eventually didn't they and just whoever came in was the, the spaceman yeah exactly eventually like much later the line that gene always uses was that given the the lineup instability it got to the point where he always says like who was the next person going to be snake boy <laughs> Because they had the fox, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Eric Carr was the fox. I Eric think the, Carr the, was the, the fox. Fo- the fox makeup was pretty cool. It looked good. Uh, yeah. I think the the Egyptian Ank warrior is also yeah. pretty cool. Like, and they were all better than the cat, weren't they? If, if, yeah. If it wasn't for the fact that the cat had come first, I don't think anybody would have gone for it. Yeah, and I mean the original Catman makeup was absolutely awful. Just like <laughs> really dreadful stuff. Uh, he improved it later, but like I don't think it would. It ever got to the point where it was cool. You know, whereas I think the other three yeah. were all cool. In, much as in I hate to, ways. much as I hate to quote Family Guy, which I think is is very mean spirited humor. The the line, "Not even Peter Chris wants to be Peter Chris," has some truth to it. Well, one person wants to be Peter Chris, but he was a hobo under a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> so I w- I would give Lick It Up a very solid rating. It's got some good power ballads on there. Um, there's a track called uh, "A Million to One," which is like kind of not quite 80s power ballad yet that genre hadn't solidified but it's kind of like a heavy ballady song good torch kind of what was it like a lighter in the air kind of thing paul kicks ass on that there's a few well, it, very it, good gene songs and then the second half of the album like if you think of it as the original vinyl second side is a bit more lazy it's showing that they have it in them to really phone stuff in which will will kick in the next couple of years <laughs> and we get like the start of the long decade of Gene's like disgusting misogynistic songs is a song called dance all over your face, which is basically like, if I hear that you're cheating on me, woman, I'm going to beat you up. And like a lot of just like nasty, aggressive use of the word bitch and stuff. Um, Yeah. But Gene has a couple of good songs. There's one in particular called not for the innocent, which is like a very kind of chuggy chug, chug metal again in that 1983 style. And he's just, you know, 
It's the the equivalent of the you know if we moved in next to your door the grass would rot because you know we're so badass. Quick question: If if this is a time when that kind of eighties cheese metal is is still coalescing, like is it on is it unfair of me to say that they're kind of running to catch up? Are are they more uh, involved in the formation of this? They're just playing along with what you know the they're they're part of a a scene and a time and a place where this is still happening. No, but or, th- or is, is it, it? I don't think it's unfair to what you said because they're not trendsetters they're you know they're they're keeping an eye on the trends and they're you know they're maybe contributing a little bit but like in in the time period where people looked to kiss and and saw them as blazing a trail is well and truly over and kiss are you know on this one they're a little bit more ahead of the game or ahead of the curve than they will be later in the 80s where it's absolutely we need to do what's on top of the charts to survive. Um, when is Crazy Nights? 87. 1980. So a, couple of, a couple of years. So that's afterwards. a bit later. Yeah. So 87 is like absolutely regressive. Um, <laughs> we are taking orders from the charts kind of stuff. Is is this the time when the, like the music videos are absolutely off the charts? Unbelievable. Like need to be seen to be believed. The, Paul Stanley. Not quite. Wearing like. The, the, the Lick It Up videos are, are kind of charming. This is like, again, it's very 1983. So there's there's two music videos for the, the track Lick It Up itself. And they have another one called All Hell's Breaking Loose. Is, is, is Which one is the like Mad Max kind of a post-apocalyptic thing? It's this one. Yeah. these these oh, Both brilliant. these videos like. <laughs> so hot babes hanging out by uh, sewers. <laughs> Eating uh, turkey legs, flaming barrels. Yes, flaming barrels. Gene Simmons and playing like a, bums a warming their hands space. over the flaming barrels. <laughs> yeah, and it's a lot of it is like a very Mad Max nineteen eighties metal trope is like almost feral levels of a uh, hot woman, and uh, probably more like Escape from New York. Actually, Mad Max probably was that nineteen eighty four. The original one was eighty eighty or eighty one, and then the Road Warriors okay, so, okay, sent so. sent everyone off the deep end, like re- wrestling <laughs> and metal and everything. Just couldn't get enough. Like Motley Crue were doing similar videos and a similar look at this time as well. Um, so Lick It Up is good. I, I again, the first side of the LP is is actually very very solid. Like you can listen to it through. Uh, the one track that that does kind of warrant a mention as well as uh, All Hell's Break It Loose which was the other single and Eric Carr the drummer wrote a riff uh, on the guitar that he thought was kind of like a cool Zeppelin-y song and then Paul Stanley rapped on top of it and so the verses <laughs> oh, have a kind of a 1983 very New York you know Queens Jewish accented Paul Stanley rap <laughs> uh, including the line what be this and what be that and why you gotta do me like that Jack <laughs> Why you gotta do me like that? <laughs> it's very. When did they make that? Do you remember that awful documentary from from about this time? Yeah, that's oh, what was it called? That's called Kiss Exposed or something. Uh, Kiss Confidential. Oh no, it is exposed. <laughs> oh no, God. it is exposed. Confidential came in later. Yeah, it's exposed. So that's all scripted nonsense. Is that the one where they're pretending to live in this mansion with like women's heads on the wall and all this? Yes, yes, oh, it that is. Was awful. Yeah, hanging out by the <laughs> pool with the ladies. So. <laughs> Oh my days. So that's 83. Uh-huh. 84, they do Animalize, uh, which was actually a big hit for them. This is a very straightforward uh, early 80s metal album as well. Um, Vinnie Vincent gets fired on the Lick It Up tour. He's uh, apparently like just a big time dose to deal with. Um, he's got a very inflated ego and sense of importance and all this. And he's a. Vinnie Vincent was like an, an outrageous shredder. So he was, he was just like. Um, a wizard on Is the he guitar like a Joe Satriani type guy like 
uh, if Is you he more c- interested in that style yeah like satriani would come across as vivaldi in comparison to vinnie vincent just in terms of like tastelessness like <laughs> there's if you go, look up on youtube like vinnie vincent masterclass guitar video or something you'll see like him in his 80s heyday like sitting down showing people how to shred and it's just like it's absolutely unlistenable you might as well just put on a chainsaw <laughs> and i have tolerance for that style of guitar like i'll be honest you know i mean i i'm not against it on principle by any means but he's just like absolute it's just to call it wanking would be generous and he thought that like oh everybody's here to see me do my shredding so he would shred on stage when it wasn't part of the show and so there's a whole bunch of oh god there's a whole bunch of incidents where paul stanley is trying to sing and Vinnie Vincent shredding all over him and they'd have fights and everything. <laughs> so I I presume Vinnie Vincent and um, uh, Eric Carr were brought in on like less, much lesser contracts that really controlled what they were allowed to do and how much they were paid th- compared to the two main guys. They're employees. So like they don't have any yeah, uh, yeah. ownership stake. They don't have voting rights. They're just, I mean, maybe it's unfair to call them goons. Hired guns. But they're, yeah, guns is probably they're more fair. Guns. but. Whether or not they recognized it that way. Yeah. They, Eric Carr was quite young, wasn't he? Uh, no, not really, no. He was no? roughly okay. same age as Gene and Paul. Uh, he had played in, like, uh, top 40 cover bands in New York, and he was an oven repairman <laughs> before <laughs> before Kiss. Uh, Paul cool. Carvello was his real name. So, a- 84 Asylum, or sorry, Animalize, excuse me, is the new album that they released in 84, it does actually really, really well because they get an MTV video hit with the song Heavens on Fire, which is kind of one of the other abiding uh, hits from this time period. But Vinnie Vincent is gone. He's kicked out. They bring in this new guy called Mark Norton. They rename him Mark St. John. Even while he's playing on the album, though, he doesn't get along uh, with Gene and Paul at all. Apparently, when uh, recording albums, uh, and especially on the guitar solos, Paul Stanley would always be really, really hard on the players whoever it was he'd be grilling them grilling them going after them going after them and it seems as though mark st john didn't take very well to this and he had kind of a bit of a i don't know a nervous or psycho psychosomatic reaction to this and his hand started to cramp up and he started to get all these issues with playing so he didn't even play on all of the album and they brought in a few ghost players including bruce kulik who will eventually replace him and he never really plays on the tour. He did a couple of shows here and there. He did a couple of half shows, but pretty much from the get-go, once Animalize is out on tour, um, Bruce Kulik takes over the, the lead spot um, on guitar. Uh, Animalize is, is a decent album. Like, there's a couple of good tracks, and but there's some, like, this is where we see the, the beginnings of Mega Lazy Gene. Like, he starts reusing riffs from older songs. Uh... And there's a lot of like, he just, the, the song structure is like riff, which is repeated during the verse and then chorus and that's it. And they do like breakdowns where the guitar just plays the opening and main riff four times by itself. And then the drums and bass come back in and they play it all together, which is just like filler, filler, filler. And like truly woeful lyrics. This is where we get like the song Burn Bitch Burn, uh, which has the song uh, When Love Rears Its Head, I'm Gonna Get On Your Case. I want to put my log in your fireplace. In your fireplace? <laughs> Which is, I mean... Gene, like, always... A, a bit like... I read a few biographies of, of Schwarzenegger years ago and strikes me as a similar character in that, you know, while obviously you like Kiss and they made some music that they cared about at times, like, I always felt like, especially for Gene, like, the second 
that wasn't the most profitable thing to do he stopped doing it and the second it didn't it didn't make financial sense to keep making albums you know when the industry changed he he just stopped and was like yep fine we're just going to do greatest hits tours forever and you know for a guy who obviously had some talent man like lazy isn't the word because he he was i suppose you could call him professional or hard working in his own way but um he he wasn't i don't know there's a sort of a what's the word well he starts basically i think for gene right he's addicted to adulation and he gets that on stage and he i think he's reached a point now where by and large he's going to get that on stage whether or not he puts any effort in to the writing and recording process yeah. or not and so now he's interested in 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 getting respect and and kind of fame at a broader level this is where he gets interested in becoming a mogul he starts to act he starts to manage other bands like he starts to manage life he discovered he starts to van halen that was earlier uh he had that had already happened in 78 but like he starts to manage liza minnelli um he starts to produce a whole bunch of like low-grade hair metal bands like i said he's acting already so, like, animalizes when you start to get, like, the phoned-in Gene years. So, like, Gene doesn't get a single, uh, you know, like a Kiss single from 82, I Love It Loud, on um, Creatures of the Night. And then he doesn't get one until Domino in 1992 with the Revenge album. Because just like Paul Stanley still cares about songwriting, he's still writing songs that could possibly be hits. Like I said, he gets a bit of a hit with Lick It Up. He gets a bit of a hit with Heavens on Fire and Animalize. And Gene is just like happy to pump out the bass. But on, like this is where we get like the, the albums start to say on the back, like produced by Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons. But like the and there is not a together. It's a separately. So like Paul produces yeah. his own songs. Gene produces his own songs. Paul will play bass or have Bruce Kulick play bass on his songs. Gene plays bass on his own songs. Maybe Paul is there or not. Do they ever get to the level you hear about with famous bands who like tour and have toured for decades and like won't talk to each other and don't travel together and don't stay in the same hotel? Are they at that level? Mm, they're probably like a few notches below that level of animosity where it's just like outright Cold War. Um, that's like the Eagles, I think. But they're definitely, you know, it's a business relationship and that's it. Yeah. They, they can stomach yeah. each other. I'd say like there was definitely probably years in this time period where Paul was probably fairly so Animalize has a very successful tour and they release a video which in those days would would sell for very high prices. They release a live video called Animalize uh, Uncensored. It's just a, a concert from uh, Detroit, and it's actually a pretty awesome live show, to be honest. They're on form. They're playing all that they do, uh, a good mix of the, the kind of new early makeup or non-makeup songs mixed with makeup classics, and they're kind of playing them all at turbocharged speeds in a kind of a heavy metal style. It's like a really interesting uh, mix of the two. Um... But there are some awful moments as well where Gene Simmons does a truly disgraceful bass solo and Paul Stanley tries to do like a tapping guitar solo because it's 1984 <laughs> and we have to acknowledge that. And those moments like are are pitiful. But generally speaking, it's pretty good and it actually sells really well. This was like a time where, you know, again, people were starting to like rent VHS players and get a VHS video for the weekend and stuff. 
at really obnoxiously high prices and uh, uh, they do well with that and they kind of take that and build upon it and then they move into 85 with a new album called Asylum. This is like, they have a very busy schedule. Like they would basically tour all summer and release an album every fall. So like almost every Kiss album has a, a release date of like September or late August. So between Animalize, September 84, and then 80, September 85, they get another album out, Asylum. And like, we've kind of moved from the 83, 84, um, Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, post-apocalyptic Mad Max, the Road Warrior inspired thing. And now by September 85, we're full on hair metal, where everything is um, pastels and sequins and bright. And it's kind of like, for better or for worse, the touch point here is Poison. Yeah, and it's it's the ha- the hair has exploded in size. It wasn't small before, but now it's absolutely gigantic, and <laughs> it's very much the androgynous, effeminate um, makeup, etc. And so, Asylum is actually, I think, a really good album, but it has an awful cover, and the band have just like a dreadful look at this time. They're kind of wearing. What's the cover of Asylum? It's it's done like it's like art style pastels, and it's the four faces. Um, and they each have like a different color lip so that like Jean, Jean has a red lip, red lips, Paul has blue lips, or sorry, purple lips, Bruce has blue, Eric Carr has green, but it's just, it looks crap. Like it's, it's very ugly. And then on the back, they have again, a pastel style kind of almost Andy Warhol-esque picture of the four of them in, I mean, a combination of dressing gowns and knickers is really really absurd and like so gene can't wear this at all uh because he's just too big he's kind of a lumbering guy you know like all the all the physical qualities that made him work as the demon really don't help him try to be like a a glamorous uh, you know androgynous and attractive kind of like uh hair metal uh siren but paul stanley can kind of pull this off you know he was kind of always a little bit effeminate anyway And he's quite comfortable in his skin in this role. And so he really steps into the, the front man spot more so than ever before. And like Asylum has some good drums. Like the drums sound pretty good. The guitars are all really crisp. We've got Bruce Kulik recording in the studio, like officially for the first time. And he knocks it out of the park. It's very 80s, you know, like it's, um, they're trying to do what they think will appeal to mainstream rock audiences at the time. So it's, there's a lot of flashy guitar stuff on it, but it's tasteful. And this is like some of the some of the songs that are embarrassing if you see the videos, but are actually quite catchy if you just listen to them. Are on this album like "Who Wants to Be Tears Lonely"? Are falling. Yeah, "Tears Are Falling." Who is wants that, to yeah. be lonely? Big God, sing-along choruses. Like the, a lot of these songs are written with uh, Paul and the guy called Desmond Child, who helped Paul write "I Was Made for Loving You" and was actually a co-writer of lots of the big Bon Jovi hits, like um, hmm. "Living on a Prayer" and "Wanted Dead or Alive" and uh, like. The, the big Bon Jovi hits from the, the golden era of that band. So, like, he's a hit maker for hire par excellence. And Paul Stanley was one of the first rock acts to, to work with him. So this is, I actually think, is a very good album. But, like, if you kind of perceive the band visually and think of the band visually, which, of course, Kiss generally inclines and, and trains you to do, this is something that, like, is very much cringe-inducing. And the, the music videos from this era are, like, I mean, they're great to just like stick on YouTube while you're having a few cans because you laugh your ass off at them, <laughs> but they're really bad. Like Bruce Kulick playing a guitar solo while they throw a bucket of water over his head 
because like that's <laughs> dramatic and the song is called Tears Are Falling. And Paul Stanley like uh, is wearing these ludicrous um, neon oh, green gloves the... with with tassels coming yeah. down and he puts his fingers over his eyes and moves them across he's wearing a, a, like a blouse that looks like a like a silk scarf basically yeah he's wearing that with a gigantic like duster coat that's made out of silk <laughs> and with his sleeves rolled up and he's running around a kind of a, a an almost like volcano style moat set but he takes these these neon green gloves with tassels on them and sticks his index fingers in front of his eyes and moves them across like they're windscreen wipers it's because he's crying because tears are falling <laughs> and it, and he's doing this with the most sober face, you know, like this. I, I am. I think if you're going to if you're going to watch one video because you're intrigued, that's that's a good one to go for. Yeah. And he he, he grabs a rope and like kind of, I don't know, scoots across the screen holding onto this rope <laughs> while a volcano explodes in the background. And like and this is all done in a soundstage in 1985. So it's chimpo like you can't even imagine. And uh, God, God love them. They're they're playing their hearts out, you know, or miming their hearts out. Gene, for some reason, something that I've always hated, is not playing with a pick, even though that's how he plays bass. He's flapping away at, uh, at the the bass strings with his right hand, like like he can play with his fingers, even though he can't. And it just looks so stupid. It's just like something that always bothered me because he's already dressed like, I mean, to say he's in drag is 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 not quite right. <laughs> It's like he, you know, it's like if you're going to, you, as a, I'm sure any drag performer would tell you, like, you don't do drag in half measures. You go all in or, or you don't. And he's kind of gone half in, but he's just, he looks r- completely ridiculous and he's uncomfortable. You, you can see, it takes a long time for Gene to figure out, like, who am I in Kiss without the demon makeup on? Without, yeah. And he yeah. hasn't got it going at all here. Whereas Paul is far more comfortable and the other two are deliberately in the background anyway. They're goons. Yeah. Um. So it doesn't really matter. But again, I would stress that there's a lot of good music on this album. Actually, if you like, you know, big '80s guitar rock and 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 uh, guitar, you know, the guitar solos of that kind of time period. Um. So after that, okay, '87 comes out Crazy Night. So like the the reason why we don't get an album in '86 is that they decide they they need a hit. So they get some video play. On MTV from the the videos that they released on Asylum, the singles, but the it's the tour isn't great, doesn't do that well financially, and so they they want to like swing for the fences and get a home run on their next album, and they decide that they need um, a producer uh, rather than to produce themselves, and so they wait all of 1986. Uh, not recording so that they can then go into 1987 with access to the producer Ron Nevison who had done I think um, he was well known for doing some producing on Bon Jovi and Ozzy Osbourne and I think Hart as well who had had some some kind of success in that time period but from what I understand when he came in he didn't really care that much and he didn't try that hard with them and in general, like Crazy Nights has a couple of good songs, but it's very soft sounding. There's almost no bottom end. It's very keyboardy, which I guess is kind of 1987. But like if you listen to a song like um, Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi, which is from around about the same time, it's got keyboards, but it's still thick. You know, it's, it's a full sound. It's got a nice round bottom end. The guitars are full. A lot of the stuff on Crazy Nights. I mean, obviously, the songs are nowhere near a Living on a Prayer territory. But they just, it's just the sound is empty and there's a lot of funny stories that 
from the people who like worked on the album with Kiss on keyboards where <laughs> Kiss didn't want to admit that they had any keyboards and stuff even though <laughs> there's there's loads of loads of obvious keyboards uh to be heard so they get a bit of a hit in the UK actually with the title track crazy crazy nights which is a, a fun song it's a fun I song like it. it's kind of childish almost like the chorus is a yeah. kind of sing along in a in a kiddy way um yeah other than that they're like their yellow submarine <laughs> yeah other than that not much uh in the way of hits off of that so it's kind of again a bit of a failure they do have some success they go back to japan for the first time in 10 years and they play the budokan and uh <laughs> if there's that that show is on youtube if you watch it there's some really outrageous choreographed dancing that the band do like <laughs> they they all jump together along with this the, you know some of the riffs it's that looks absolutely ludicrous paul stanley looks like a fool as well he's wearing completely stupid clothes but that's that's again 1987 not many people acquitted themselves uh with honor sartorially in that I, time period no this is the time period as well which you probably remember we talked about before where paul stanley is completely obsessed with bon jovi and every question or every discussion that the, they're having at, at office level is well would bon jovi do this <laughs> and paul is it's like they're doing they're doing well so yeah they obviously know what to do we have to be like them yeah and he's um paul is taking his his guidance from his therapist who he then oh, installs yeah. as uh the manager of the band manager and then as you might expect when you hear stories about therapists who then take control of bands he runs off with all their money <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and that's I'm a surprise that's that a, didn't happen to Metallica. That's a big fight. Yeah. Well, they still had a, a hard-nosed manager who was probably the one who told that performance coach to fuck off when the time finally came. <laughs> I think that's probably the difference. They release uh, they release oh. a, um, uh, a greatest hits around this time called Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits from 1988, and um, that actually does really well. That's one of their best-selling albums in a good few years since Animalize at least. And uh, so some of the stuff that's kind of controversial about this is that they remixed a bunch of their earlier hits to be more 80s to get like so they give them the big 80s drum sound and stuff. They take no Beth, way. which I'm sure, you know, like it's kind of the Peter Chris ballad that's really ballad yeah. famous from the, the early days. And they take off Peter Chris's vocal and have Eric Carr sing on top of it. Oh, my day. So that he can do it live. Is it? No, or just because we don't, might do it live. we don't want to give him any we royalties. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> now, he, Peter Chris wrote the song, so he gets his uh, writing royalties, but they don't want any performance royalties. It's also just like a typical Gene and Paul move, like you're no longer just, part of our regime, yeah. so fuck you. Like, w were they doing it live at that point? No. 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 Um, I mean, who would sing it like? Yeah. Eric? Yeah, Eric Carr would have or, yeah, would have sang it, but they, they never did it. It was never in that set list. Uh, they also mm. do two new songs on this, uh, both of which are pretty awful. So one called Rock Hard, um, pretty forgettable. And then they have Let's Put the X in Sex, which is... Yes, there you go. Scrolls <laughs> lyrically, loves like a muscle and you make me want to flex. Want to flex. And also, uh, in the video for that, Paul Stanley has no guitar. So he's kind of, again, he's thinking of himself more and more as a front man. And it's yeah. very weird to see him without a guitar. He, it, it's like looking at him naked in a, in a strange way. Yeah, it is. It is very much a part of how he always moved and held himself, and, and he, like he do, he do things with his hands. But he'd like he chug a chord every now and then, and then lift his hands up and do something. And 
but it was it was very much part of his his look and his his physical his physicality. Yeah, it was always be hanging around his his crotch at very least, you know, even if he was doing absurd dances or whatnot. So smashes, thrashes, and hits like it. I'd say it probably brought a lot of people back into Kiss and especially like connected the past with the present and for you know new listeners. But it's amongst the kind of the hardcore fans. It's it's hated as you know, like it it desecrates the old classics and and even for someone like me who doesn't like the song Beth and doesn't have massive amounts of respect for Peter Chris, it's still a, just a, a like an unconscionable dick move to replace someone's vocals on a greatest hits album like it's there's no need yeah. for that no matter what there's no need Espe- for that. especially in the era before you know easily easily accessing older material you're you're kind of writing them out of history in a way that's exactly like exactly. That, that that's a, that's, a, that's a harder move to make back then than it might be now now you if you if you make a change now you're like hey there's another version of this available but back then it's like you're writing over the past yeah and it's and it was much harder to do then so like you have to be committed to the cynical uh attitude and and goal associated with it so um after that then they released an album called hot in the shade in 1989 this is a a very uh has the cover of the is that the sphinx wearing the wearing the sunglasses wearing sunglasses yeah pretty pretty uh (laughs) you know that's a divisive cover cover amongst the kiss fan base like i always liked it but a lot of people think it's very dad thinks this is cool kind of stuff you know um like out of touch it's silly but like i mean i don't know is is it cool or is it just kind of silly i, I think yeah depends I, I, on how serious you want to be about it yeah i'm not sure it's cool but i also think it's uh, you know it's a bit of fun also the the sphinx is wearing like very 1989 sunglasses like i, I remember when you bought that album back in the day and some song on it made dad say that that could be bluegrass that basically sounds like bluegrass with heavy guitars oh my god and i can't can you even imagine what song that might have been? Like, is there any folky sort of feeling to any of the writing on that? Not that I can think of. Uh, like, there are there are absolutely bands who who like play heavy music that you can clearly see their their songwriting chops are coming from folk. Like, there are some Bad Religion albums where you you can tell that they have, you know, an interest in bluegrass and that. I, I can't imagine what song. Anyway, that's just something that came into my head. Yeah, Hot in the Shade is a weird album. It's got 15 songs on it. It's way too long. I'd say it's like they were starting to think about the CD at this time, you know, where you can fit 70 minutes or whatever on there. But they were also like, they were pretty poor. So the, the therapist had ran off with their money. They hadn't had very successful tours in the last couple of years. So they, they decided to basically just use their demos and they paid for like as as um as short amount of time in the studio as they possibly could just to put a bit of polish on the demos that they had so like it's i wouldn't say it sounds unfinished but it sounds crap it sounds unfocused they just threw all the songs in there gene is just like we discussed before how like everybody always says like gene could write five songs and you know one of them could be great and the other four could be shit like the worst things ever and he doesn't know the difference like i told you before about how he had a song called Stanley the Parrot and he didn't know why that one wasn't as good as Calling <laughs> Dr. Love or, you know, whatever. Not the Calling Dr. Yeah, Love. Yeah, no quality but. control. Yeah, he just doesn't, he doesn't care. And so, like, there's some songs that from Gene in particular, although Paul is a few oh, where, stinkers too. like, it's, it, it, yeah, but it, but at the same time, you know that Paul was, like, you know, wringing his hands and, and desperately trying to craft some, like, he deeply cared, he cared way too much about the quote-unquote art of what he was doing for kind of, the, st- the sort of stuff he was writing and the kind of level of talent he had 
you know, he was true. He would have been bothered by whether or not anyone thought his songs were, were great. Definitely. Definitely. No, Paul wanted that. Gene didn't, doesn't care about that. Or at least he puts a lot of effort into like having a, a public facing uh, attitude of not caring about that. But like he has a song on this one called The Street, The Street Giveth and The Street Taketh Away. And <laughs> you can just imagine trying to cram that into a chorus. <laughs> Just those words <laughs> it just doesn't work and there's another one where he is another song called betrayed and when he's singing the word like betrayed in the chorus there's probably about like 25 syllables <laughs> he's a betrayed in that classic gene kind of style so it's a lot of just like and like they they didn't bother to like replace drum machines that they used on the demos with real drums. Oh no! And which pissed Eric Carr off so much because he was just like, "What what am I chop liver? Like you don't need me? What <laughs> what's going on here?" And the drums like again, these are at home demos with nineteen eighty nine drum machines. They sound dreadful. Is this just like stuff they made, you know, as they were writing new songs just to trial them out? Is that what, when you say demo, that's that's what you're talking about? Exactly, yeah. So they, you know, they'd be fooling around with riffs at home, trying to get the song together, working on, you know, song structure and different lyric and different uh, harmony ideas. And then the idea is you bring that into the band, play it for everyone, then you work out the real song in the studio where you've got an engineer and a producer like, and they didn't bother for, with that at all. You know, we forget, we forget today, studio time is, is so expensive. I mean, it still is, but you, you, you know, if you're a serious musician and, and you, you have a bit of cash, you have options now, but in those days, you know, you could blow thousands and thousands and thousands just because your sessions in the studio weren't being very productive because you were having creative problems or personal issues or whatever you know it's a huge way to blow money and if you and if you were fleetwood mac you would do thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of blow while blowing loads of money in the studio um so hot, <laughs> also approved by so Peter I, Chris. I would say hot in the shade not not an especially good album there's one or two tracks that i like there's a track called rise to it which is kind of like a good bluesy I'm gonna rise i'm gonna rise <laughs> yeah uh, that's that's a gonna classic Paul Stanley. You know, I'm gonna talk about my cock in a thinly veiled <laughs> um, double entendre, and it also has the line: "If you want a lover who can play the other role, I'm gonna rise to it." So, not sure what that means, but that's fine. It also has "Forever" on it, which is a open-minded chap, <laughs> supposedly. Uh, it also has "Forever." It's a nice <laughs> big power ballad co-written with Michael Bolton. That got them a bit of airplay. So again, much needed cash injection there. Uh, but Hot in the Shade, very skippable. And like, it's a chore to listen to all 15 tracks in one go. And if I'm telling you that, you know it's not that good. <laughs> you know, I think like, if, if you're going to sit down and listen to a Kiss album, it better not be more than that, that much more than 35, 38 minutes, you know um so yeah. like a kind of a 50 to 60 minute kiss album it's just nobody wants that unless it's a live album or something um the tour for hunt and shade is very successful they were kind of playing with a couple of bands like faster pussycat and slaughter i think who were kind of popular at that time so they actually did very good business on the tour it was like a package tour basically and they had the big um sphinx with the sunglasses on the stage and lasers would come out of its eyes and its mouth would open and the lads would come out of the mouth <laughs> Pretty good stuff. Pretty good stuff. That sounds brilliant. Yeah, yeah. No, in fairness, they always that they always amazing. try to keep the spectac- uh, spectacle going, you know. 
so then, like, they kind of get lost in the mm. wilderness for a little while uh, between this time period. You know, like, hair metal is over. They've dialed down their look a little bit. On the Hot in the Shade tour, they started to play more of the 70s Kiss songs. And, like, people sort of, sort of see this as a bit of a... They're, they're now starting to think more seriously about the possibility of a re reunion and that they're transitioning out of the kind of 80s hair metal phase. But anyway, nothing comes of that, and they come back with a new album in 1992 called Revenge, which is, like, the the standard opinion is that this is the best non-makeup album. It's the first time they kind of have a cool look in a, like, in a genuinely badass way, kind of wearing, like, leather jackets. Gene grows a goatee, and he kind of finally looks a bit menacing again, you know, instead of just looking uncomfortable and bizarre. And there's a bunch of good songs on Revenge, very heavy, like Gene has Unholy, which is kind of like the first time that we get a bit of a feeling of the demon character again. Um, and he does Domino, which is kind of almost like a ZZ Top style rocker. Got some stupid misogyny in there, but other than that, good riffs. And really like excellent drums, uh, sorry, um, guitar solos from Bruce Kulick. Eric Carr had died of cancer. In 1991, so he's replaced now by Eric Singer, who's actually the guy who wears the uh, Peter Chris Catman makeup in the band now, uh, in the modern era. And Eric Singer is a very good drummer. Um, he had played in Black Sabbath before this, actually, during the absolute wilderness years of their 80s, which I highly recommend <laughs> for for good fun as well. But Revenge, badass, um, heavy album, band sounds confident and comfortable. Some bad lyrics, but not as bad as you might think. And it also has God Gave Rock and Roll to You from Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, ah, which yes. everybody likes. So I would say Revenge, generally considered the best non-makeup album, and I don't have an issue with that personally. Um, they do a tour for this, where now, instead of having the, the big um, Sphinx with the sunglasses and all the rest of it, they have a bit massive Statue of Liberty, and at the end of the show... Do lasers come out of its eyes? Yes, lasers come out of the eyes, which shows you that it's just the Sphinx Great. retrofitted. Um, <laughs> towards the end of the show, uh, there's like a big pyro explosion and the face of the Statue of Liberty falls off and there's kind of like a, a mecha skull Terminator style. Oh. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what the, the, you know, the story related to that is, but it's cool. And that's a good tour. They do a, a live video of that, which I which I enjoy watching. I'd say that's a that's like one of the best lineups of the band musically. Like everybody's firing on all cylinders. They do a live three out of that tour, so like a live uh, album, which is some people hate it because it's like it, they don't do many new songs. It's all a lot of the same ones that they'd done on the earlier live albums. But I like the fact that it's this cool badass 90s lineup playing these older 70s songs it's kind of a, like a nice mix um but we're kind of getting to the stage now where again they start to think pretty seriously about the reunion so which is 98 isn't it? 96 eventually 96. 96 yeah so they do is that the next thing that happens basically yeah i mean they do the unplugged album from mtv uh, MTV Unplugged was a huge deal at the time. Clapton and Nirvana. I think we'll, yeah, we might have to leave that for another episode because it's kind of its own story and that reinvention. Yeah, the, the, and kind the, of Kiss rebranding themselves as a as a heritage act. The only thing that really is kind of like germane to our discussion here that happens around that time 
is that they had been recording an album called Carnival of Souls, or it was originally at one point going to be called Head, and it was like a full-on <laughs> grunge album. So they had... Gene Simmons no apparently way. was like very much back in the driver's seat, and he had kind of said to Paul, like, look, in the 80s, when you were the one who's, you know, I don't know, aesthetics better fitted the moment I let you take control well now i'm the dark one i'm the demon or whatever and <laughs> darkness reigns supreme in this 90s <laughs> and so what? he was obsessed with billy corgan and smashing pumpkins and all this kind of stuff was he yeah mad into it Jeez. and so they were recording all these grunge songs and like down to Did paul stanley just roll over and say yeah sure i can hardly he... yeah he went along with it he did he did songs wow. like this too yeah um and so wow. they did this album. They were working away on it. Bruce Kulick was really heavily involved. He got a lot of like creative uh, interplay. Um, and he always says, like, if you like the album, uh, great. If you don't like the album, like, don't blame me. You know, like, I, I, got, I did what I was told. But, like, yes, I was more involved. But I was also given a mandate. You know, like, I was told what to do. Yeah. And then, so, but there's a lot of, like, cool drums. They're not very well recorded. But they're, they're cool drums. Lots of really heavy riffs. Like, lots of down-tuned riffs. Uh, lots of like kind of evil style lyrics and not evil but like you know again in that 90s kind of you know songs like uh called master and slave and this kind of stuff in right. incidentally the breakdown section for master and slave is the exact same as uh um freak on a leash by corn so i don't know maybe <laughs> the corn lads were listening to this but what's really funny about this is that it comes out in 1997 because uh bootlegs of it had started to circulate online so the kids said all right fine we'll just release it and they release it as carnival of souls the final sessions so they're kind of saying like this is what we're but, but they didn't want to release it because they had changed they had decided by that point to change direction is it? exactly so by the time this comes out the kiss reunion is in full swing they're touring like crazy in the makeup they've kind of you know got the crest of a cultural wave again 70s nostalgia is pretty high you know again this is the era of that 70s show you know everything 20 years ago is always kind of cool again for a minute were kiss ever on that show yeah they were yeah right okay that makes a lot of sense because they yeah they used to have cameos of people obviously who were big in the 70s who were still around yeah you know in the 90s yeah i suppose so and so what's funny about this is that the carnival of souls album comes out and it's like grunge was still around or at least like i don't know you know post grunge alt rock was was still around and kiss reunion was kind of existing in a parallel but synchronous universe to this where yeah, you know well, like a, it's a nostalgia thing at that point isn't it? it's different it's not current it's in its in its bubble kind of exactly they were playing to the dads hermetically sealed yeah yeah playing to the dads, the dads point, who were bringing yeah. their kids to say oh look you know when i was your age i saw kiss in 1970 whatever and now we're going to go as a family but what was funny is carnival souls comes out and only the hardest of the hardcore Kiss fans really buy it, but a couple of the alternative rock radio stations in the US start to pick up in this this one track called Jungle, which is yeah, it's kind of a it's a groovy almost like silver chair or sound gardeny kind of song. It's a Paul Stanley song, down tuned, heavy, drop D kind of riffs, um, good big chorus. Like it's I would say like if you could imagine like what does Paul Stanley do well. And then bring some dark grunge vibes into that. Like, it's as good as that could ever be. It's not to say it's great, but it's it's pretty damn good for what that kind of concoction might possibly deliver. If you think about everything that could go wrong, 
you know, it's, it's far better than that. So it starts to get some radio play and actually charts as a single. And Kiss don't want anything <laughs> to do with it. <laughs> because it doesn't match with their exactly yeah, they're not selling their they're, they're not selling yeah. that brand right now and so it's oh pretty God. hilarious but at this stage eric singer and bruce kulik have been fired you know well you know amicably amicably let go because ace and peter are back yeah and so like there's no yeah. vehicle to do anything with this potential success and kiss are succeeding through the roof like they're you know this is when we start to get the the mcfarlane figures and comics and the merchandise yeah. empire has been like you know the they went into the warehouse and pulled out the Kiss-O-Matic and blew off the dust. And you mean? Do you mean? Uh, and, and they start showing up in, in like Family Guy and stuff like that. Well, at this point. that'll be later. Or but like shortly after, this is what secures their legacy, so that ten years later, Family Guy can make jokes about them and feel confident that people will know who they are. You know what I mean? Yeah. They kind of like this. The success of this reunion tour segments them into the popular consciousness in a way where nobody can deny their role you know you can say that they're a, a bunch of idiots or that they're something that everyone should be ashamed of or whatever you want but you have to kind of you know who they are and you kind of take a stand accordingly whereas i think so as we always yeah as we always say these things go in in sort of 20 year cycles ish big time and if if they were if they were getting their second wind in the 90s from the 70s uh it's kind of hard to imagine now that we're in in the in the midst of kind of retro 80s everything like you know for all the, all the, all the time growing up for us the 80s was like you know a byword for tasteless it was the decade taste forgot and and kiss kiss it's kind of hard to it's kind of for young people it might be hard to imagine how that that's how it was seen and and stuff like you know 80s kiss was was like non grata for so long for so many people and that's changing now well, i would i would say for sure that by and large for the average person if you wanted to, to, to make them credulous to the idea that 80s was synonymous with tastelessness, Kiss, <laughs> Kiss's out, output in that time period is very much evidence for the prosecution. And it's, <laughs> it's case closed. You just need to show them the video for Who Wants to Be Lonely or oh, All Night, All, all Night uh, from Asylum is just... Tears are falling, holy shit. It's like Tears are falling is a good song with a stupid camp video, whereas Oh, All Night is an obnoxious gross song <laughs> lyrically the music is uninspired and dull and the video is like do you know it's so camp it's all it's their attempt to kind of do the um the robert palmer addicted to love with the you know the sexy babes who are cool and detached except they they have this procession of nurses pushing hospital uh, beds and the oh, nurses yeah. are in this kind of you know sexy garb yeah. And then the like Paul and Jean like explode out of the beds. <laughs> it's just <laughs> awful, awful, awful stuff. Okay, uh, maybe this is a topic for another time. But Jean's movie career in the eighties definitely oh, yes, warrants yes. discussion. Uh, let's mention probably that. <laughs> most interestingly for for Kean for yourself and maybe people who have similar tastes to, to you is that he, his first movie called Runaway uh, starring uh, Tom Selleck opposite Gene was directed and written by Michael Crichton oh no so there you oh, go oh no he also I've seen him in a, 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 do you remember that that horror movie Trick or Treat with, with the Trick or Treat yeah I watched that again about two weeks he, ago Oh. <laughs> yeah he's only oh, really man. very very briefly in it he was also in a co an episode of um miami vice at the time 
um, <laughs> where he plays a drug dealer on a, on a boat or a yacht in Miami surrounded by babes and socks. And then he was also in a movie called, um, what was it now? Oh, it's called Wanted Dead or Alive, where uh, he plays like a really, again, just stereotypical borderline racist kind of arab terrorist called malak al-rahim and uh he's oh, no. playing opposite rutger hauer if you can believe it and at the end <laughs> rutger hauer like avenges uh gene simmons uh blowing up of a cinema by throwing a grenade into his mouth <laughs> and the 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 explosion is dreadfully chimpo but also worth a watch he's also in a movie called never too young to die where he plays not my words the word or not my word the word used in the movie a hermaphrodite kind of drag queen style performer who's also deranged and wants to blow up a massive dam to contaminate the water to kill everyone with nuclear waste and the right there's a there's like a drag performance scene where gene simmons is in like full garb and he's kind of dishing out you know sort of double entendres that he later then uses in kiss songs. <laughs> <laughs> so he says something at one point, I don't have manners and I'm not too clean, but I know what I like. If you know what I mean, which is part of the whole, like, oh, you know, no way. You know, gender bending kind of, you know, very 1985 or whenever it was idea of a drag performer. Yeah. And then in 1992 on the revenge album on the, the song spit, which is a fucking disgrace of a song. He, he then uses that <laughs> lyric. And that's the song as well, by the way, where he uses the lyric, the bigger the cushion, the better the pushing, which is Spinal Tap. Oh, that's where that comes from. Well, it comes from Spinal Tap and Gene just used it. Oh, which is right. Unironically, I guess. I mean, do you think he's capable of irony? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> so Gene's movie career is pretty hilarious. Uh, he's just an awkward looking guy. Um, his character in Runaway is called Charles Luther. And in... Um, Never Too Young to Die, where he plays the kind of the, I suppose, the hermaphrodite again. There's a lot of stuff in that movie where it's like he's he's uh, playing opposite John Stamos and they're having a fight. And John Stamos is like, you may be half man and half woman, but I am all man. This kind of stuff, like really bad. And at the end, Gene Simmons has him over. It's like over the... commando levels of. Yeah, it's, a, it's yeah. aspiring towards commando levels of shit dialogue. <laughs> There's a really bad bit at the end where. Gene Simmons has him hanging over a uh, a dam and he's uh, like about to, to to throw him off and, and then succeed in his dastardly plan. And John Stamos is like, hang on, come here. You're so beautiful. And then Gene Simmons is like, oh, I can't help it. You know, like I've been lured in by the fact that you appreciate my beauty. So then he goes in for it to kiss John Stamos with his tongue out. Like, going to, of and then course. John Stamos stabs Gene Simmons in the neck with his own long, you know, again, kind of very 80s style gender bending long nail and he stabs himself he stabs gene simmons in the neck with his own nail and then gene does a very kiss demon style eyes roll back into his head with his tongue out and then falls <laughs> over the dam while going and plays the one note bass solo <laughs> like he does the the witch laugh multiple times in this the ha- yeah the halloween skeleton witch exactly. laugh yeah. <laughs> and his character in that is called velvet von ragnar oh god <laughs> So schlock, schlock, schlock. Um, it's funny to like he he throws himself into it, but he just doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. Yeah. So 
the movie career, I think it, it's worth probably going into more detail on, especially Runaway. Um, but I'll just give... It's like, at the same period, you had people like Schwarzenegger, who I genu- genuinely don't think gave a shit about film. But, you know, it was just a vehicle for him to further his own celebrity. But, you know, for at least the first half of his career, he seemed to have made very clever choices about what to appear in. You know, aside from a few dodgy early ones. Whereas, like, some of these guys, you know, like the... I don't know, you know, The Rock. You look at look at these guys who break out. They're famous for one thing and they break out into film for that reason. And you just start to trying to understand what their decision-making process is for what films they're in. And I don't know. I think, I, know I, I think The Rock and Schwarzenegger have, in different ways, otherworldly charisma that made it possible that for them... Yeah, yeah. That made it possible for them to succeed beyond what you might think their obvious limitations are. Whereas I think Gene's yeah. limitations are what you would think they are. Uh, in in a funny way, I think, actually. I think, you you know, you could think, all right, he's only going to be good at this. And you might say, well, you never know. But no, actually, he's only really good at that. And I, I'm, I've always been rendered uncomfortable by watching him do anything except, you know, roll his irons into his head and stick out his tongue and play one note. Yeah. Solos. He's kind of crap at everything else in a way that's it's like... In wrestling, they call it X-Pac heat, which is like, we're not booing you because we want to see someone beat you. We're booing you because we want you to go away. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I think yeah, outside of the he, demon, he, he... for the most part, Gene Simmons, especially when he talks politics or anything like that. Oh, God, save me. That's very much X-Pac <laughs> heat. Boo, boo, go away, go away, go away. <laughs> so very, maybe, very quick. Maybe another day for that yeah, one, too. Before we get out of here, I'll give my... Uh, so the seven studio albums in the non-makeup years. And so the best, in my opinion, is Revenge. Then I would say Asylum. Then Lick It Up. Then Animalize. Then Crazy Night. Then a big drop to Hot in the Shade, which, like I said, isn't very good. And then I put Carnival of Souls last. Not because it's the worst, but because nobody goes to Kiss for grunge. And even like a good Kiss grunge album, it's not a good Kiss album. It's not a good grunge album. It's neither fish nor fowl. Why would you want this? Nobody goes to kiss for for. You know, I think progressive fantasy rock, except me <laughs> and me uh, and the elder. Like, I had a conversation with uh, with my friend Andrew Jonka once about Iron Maiden, which are probably his favorite band. And I said, like, do you care about every album that Maiden did throughout their bazillion year career? And he kind of said, like, I'm not sure I do. I said, I I care about every Kiss album, you know. And I think. If only the person who has that level of fandom, you know, like fanaticism would ever give a shit about an album like Carnival of Souls. And for that reason, I can't give it much of a a thumbs up. I think even some of these mid 80s hair metal albums, I think they'll if you're not thinking about the visual associated, they can give you what you might go to kiss for, which is a kind of a fist thumping party rock good time moment yeah if you're not aware of the the visuals yeah i think they can give you what you how they were presenting themselves at the time yeah they would give you what you would assume you know kiss can deliver positively whereas the sound alone could be folded into the sort of popular conception of like pseudo 70s stadium kiss exactly without too much disruption yeah whereas master of slave master and slave with its (laughs) with its corn riffs if we were to send listeners to one album just out of curiosity, what would it be? It has to be Revenge. It's it's by Revenge. far okay. the best. Uh, 1992. 1992. Lick It Up is also pretty damn good. Um, and will probably 
uh, give a lot of people a bit of what they need. But I would say, like, the, if, if you want homework from this, it's go watch the Tears Are Falling video on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks, Donald. So once again, folks, as we said at the beginning, this is like the first bonusy kind of episode. If you want to hear more of them, you can check out on the Patreon. I'll put a link to it. And the plan is hopefully all things going well, we'll put out one of the plus episodes a week and they'll be about something other than the usual stuff we talk about. So wide ranging movies, music, silly things, fun things. That sort of thing. If you'd like to sort us out, help us out, that really helps. Otherwise, even if you're not thinking about it, just go and take a look because I've given all the categories funny names and you might as well check them out. There will be a link in the notes and uh, through the socials as well. So, as usual, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a box.